Well, we're going to get heavy into suffering today. Why is there suffering in this world? I, I know that there's something of God's word that will bring a special blessing to us today, but uh, when it comes to talking about suffering and why there is suffering, it's pretty tough stuff. And so it, it's good to review. I want to review a couple of God's truths that we have seen in Romans chapter 8 so we can put this thing of suffering into the proper context. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, then as John says in his gospel, God has given you the right to be called a child of God. For as many as have received him, he has given them the right to become the child of God. And last week we focused on our inheritance as the children of God. In verse, in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, if you look at that 17th verse, verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, we have the right to become children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we learn that our inheritance as God's adopted children includes the world and everything that's in it. We inherit the earth. But best of all, we saw that our inheritance includes God himself. In fact, if we said that our great inheritance was mainly the things that God has made, the things that God has given to us, and not God himself, we would be idolaters. Uh, think of Romans chapter 5, the second part of verse 2. Right before Paul talks about exalting in our tribulations, he says in Romans chapter 5, in verse 2, the second part, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the great joy of our hope is that one day we will see the glory of God himself. And we exult in that. We will savor the glory of God. Remember when Moses prayed, Lord, I pray you, show me your glory. I just need something of you, Lord. And Moses only got to see his backside as the Lord passed by. When we see him, we will see him in all his glory. In the fifth, in the fifth chapter, verse 11, Paul adds, and not only this, but we also exalt in God. We exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the gifts of God, not even in this verse, even in the glory of God, but in God himself. We exalt in God. This is the great inheritance of the Lord himself. And this is how that great hope of the Christian church is described in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. You don't need to turn to it. Just, just listen to this. At the end of Revelation, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And this was also the declaration of the hope of the psalmist in the 73rd Psalm, where he asked, whom have I in heaven but you? Whom, who do I have in heaven but you, Lord? And besides you, I don't desire anything on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And then he says, and my portion forever. My inheritance forever. That's the great truth. Remember, that was the spectacular. But we also talked about the suffering. The other truth that we need to keep in mind is that this road to glory is the road of suffering. You go through suffering to get there. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 8 again. 17th verse. 
And if children, heirs also, heirs with, of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed, or since, since we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The road to glory is the road to suffering. Now what we're going to see in verses 18 through 22 is that the suffering is worth it. The suffering is worth it. Our suffering is worth it because it leads to glory. These verses are meant by Paul to help us persevere in faith and to not throw away our hope. To persevere, not throw away. They are meant to help us to stand firm with Christ during the hard times, all the frustrations, all the hardships of life, to stand firm, to don't throw away our hope in Christ when you suffer because the suffering is worth it and it surely will lead to glory. That's the point of verse 18 of this 8th chapter. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is what Paul wants you to believe with all your heart. He wants you to believe this. And you need to believe this with your heart and not just your head because when the sufferings come, it takes a deep, deep conviction and hope not to throw in the towel. You'll be tempted to say, if this is the payoff for trusting Christ, hey, I'm done. This is not worth it. If I have to suffer to, to go to glory, then forget it. Now, if that were not a real temptation, Paul would not have written these several verses in Romans chapter 8. He's writing to help us not to throw away our hope in Christ when the miseries and the groanings of this present time are overwhelming. And so in order to give us hope, the hope of glory, Paul wants us to see suffering from a cosmic perspective. A cosmic perspective. First, he shows us that all creation, all creation, the whole universe literally is involved in the groaning, involved in the frustration and corruption and suffering. And so Paul says it three times in three different ways. We see it in verse 22, the 22nd verse. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The whole creation is groaning. In other words, don't think that when you suffer, it has only something to do with you and your situation. The whole creation. Yes, when we suffer, we think of ourselves, but don't think so much of yourself that you think it's only you. That somehow you're singled out for suffering and nobody else is suffering, that you have it any different than anybody else. You are part of a groaning of the whole creation. All creation experiences it. We also see this in verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. The entire creation's in slavery to corruption. Your groaning and your suffering in this world are part of a universal slavery to corruption. Your suffering is not merely personal. Yes, it is personal, but there's a much bigger explanation for it. It's part of something global, something cosmic. There is in the world, there is in the universe, a nature of decay. There's a ruin, there's a dissolution, there is a perishing. There's something completely out of order, and it's harmful. It's not just you, because 
of thinking of all your suffering, if all you have to do is something that is just me individually, you go, well, you know, what about everybody else? Well, it is everybody else. And of course, you are going to suffer the consequences of many of the things that you do. All sin has consequences. But don't fall into the trap of thinking all my consequences are because of something I did or take it personal. Because that's the trap that uh, Job's friends fell into. Remember that? Remember Job's friends? Job had lost everything he had, including his ten children and his health. And he's sitting on an ash heap, scraping his boils. Now there's a horrible picture. His three friends came along to console him. And the only good thing they did was that they sat with him for seven days without saying a word. But when they opened their mouths, they tried everything they could think of to get Job to admit to some sin. Surely, Job, you have sinned against God. That's why you're having all of this. And they thought that Job's problems were, uh, uh, he was suffering because of his sin. And, And Job, if you just own up to it, you're going to be okay at this. But from God's perspective, Job 1.22 says, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job complained a lot. Think he complained without sinning? Job did. Because he kept his complaint all in the perspective of who God was and what, what God is doing. Your groaning and your suffering in this world are a part of a universal slavery to corruption. And we also see the whole creation groans in verse 20 of Romans chapter 8. Did you notice we're moving backwards through the text? <laughs> Started with 22, we went 21, now we're at verse 20. Why is the whole creation groaning? Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then it goes on in hope. Notice again, the whole creation is in the grip of futility. Not just mankind, not just you, the whole creation. And so the first thing Paul does is to put our suffering in a cosmic context and and give us perspective to help us endure our our misery. He, He shows us that all of nature, all of creation is involved in this suffering that we must endure. And secondly, to help us endure and maintain our hope and glory Paul shows us that all of our suffering is historical, not just momentary. In other words, not only does it grip all of nature, it grips all of history, all of our present history. It grips what Paul calls in verse 18, this present time. For I consider that the sufferings of this present times, the sufferings are in this time. So there's a historical dimension to our suffering. And there are certain time references all the way through this. We also see it in verse 20 where he says, For the creation was subjected, past tense, to futility. It was past tense, in a point of time, subjected to futility. There was a historical event in the past long ago when the creation was subjected to futility. And then in verse 21 he says that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, set free. Future tense, still in history, will be set free. There was a point in time when the futility began. There's going to be a point in time of the suffering of the future when creation is going to be set free. So between the distant past and the indefinite future, 
between all that time, all of history is, is suffering and groaning. So again, don't think that you or your family or your time or this special time is necessarily singled out for suffering. I know that's an easy trap to fall into because every generation of Christians believes they're in the last days. Why? Because of their suffering. Is it going to be any different for us? We, we pray this is it. Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. But the, the groaning and corruption and futility has been in this world for all of history and will be till Jesus comes again. Or we could say almost all of history. Because the third way that Paul shows us the cosmic dimension of our groaning is to point out that it had a beginning. We know that we saw that. It has an ending. It having to do with nature. But Paul says it was also judicial. It was judicial. It was part of a decree. Look at verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Here is the beginning and time past, the futility and corruption and the groaning of creation. And what is Paul referring to? I don't want you to miss this because this is so important, probably the most important point so far. Something or someone subjected creation to futility. It was subjected. What is the subject? Remember that from English class? There's a subject and there's a verb. In this case, it's an action verb. There's the subject. The subject performs the action. Paul is referring here to God's action in subjecting the creation to futility and groaning and corruption. How do we know it was God that he's referring to here? If you have the New American Standard, the he is capitalized, but in other translations, it's, it's not capitalized. We've got to know who the he is. How do we know there was not Adam? By his sin, Adam sent all creation into the downward spiral of corruption and futility. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Or how do we know that it was not Satan by his temptation of Adam and Eve? How do we know it's not Adam or not, not uh, uh, Satan? We know this because of the words, look at the very end of verse 20. Not a very good place for a verse break there. Because it says, in hope, in hope. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, there's our subject, who subjected it in hope. Adam did not subject the world to futility in hope, did he? Adam had no plan for the revelation of the children of God in due time. Satan did not subject the world to futility and hope. Satan had no plan for the revelation of the children of God in due time. The person referred to in verse 20 is God. God is the subject. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It didn't want to do this, as he personifies creation. Please don't do this to us, but because of him, because of God who subjected it in hope. It was God who subjected creation in hope. And what is the hope? Just cover that just for a minute here. Verse 21. What was the hope? That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul is talking about the same thing here that he referred to in Romans chapter 5, verse 21, or verse 12, 5, 12. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, death and suffering and futility and groaning came into this world. Why? Because God said it would. Because God said it would. God said to Adam, eat of this tree and what? You will die. And this leads to a massive and incredibly important truth. The futility and the corruption and the groaning of creation are not just natural, the natural consequences of Adam's sin. They are judicial. They are a divine judicial decree of God, not just the natural consequence of material events. In response to sin, God decreed the futility and the corruption and the groaning of this world. It's a judicial act, not just a natural consequence. God said to the serpent, what? You are cursed. God said to the man, what? Cursed is the ground because of you. Not you, that you did it, Adam, but because of you. Because you sinned, I have cursed this ground. I have cursed this creation. It will know nothing but futility until Jesus comes again. Remember the second law of thermodynamics, sometimes called entropy? That the universe is running down, that has a built-in tendency now to disorder. That's not a natural quirk or accident. Everything's running down. Everything's running down. It's part of God's decree. Since the fall, futility is built into the universe. And no matter how hard mankind tries to fix it, or laws that he passes, or how hard he tries it, tries to reverse the disorder of things, fires, floods, earthquakes, disasters, disease, famines, you name it, mass murders, school shootings, all are part and parcel of the groanings of this present time. And we wish that wasn't true. And it seems to me there's at least two ways that Christians in particular try to make this not true. Just not so. One way is we, we like to think that God is not really involved in our daily lives. And we can kind of go it alone. And the other way is we're told that, well, God doesn't want you to suffer at all. Now, many Christians are so desperate to remove God from the suffering of the world that they're willing to become what I'd call practical deist in order to keep God out of the equation. Uh, they, they don't think that God's involved in their suffering at all. It's just, well, we live in the world and that's the way it is and, and we suffer and Remember the deist in the early days of the founding of, of our nation? A deist is a person who thinks of the universe as created by God, and then he sets it apart like a, a clock to tick on its own with no, no divine interference. Everything is explained in terms of merely natural laws or, or, or just the way that things work. and They're not divine decrees. In other words, God set everything in motion and as long as you are in tune with God's natural laws, life goes on pretty well. It doesn't take very long for natural law to become the worship of nature, does it? You know, I heard last night, and I'm not going to get into the debate on this, but uh, they were talking about the fires and everything going on, and the liberals and the conservatives are fighting back and forth how to prevent the fires and what we need to do with the the the, the 
you know, with the forest and how to manage them and those kind of things, and they can't agree and they just make things worse. And, and then the, the, the commentator finished it by saying, scientists pretty much know what to do <laughs> to manage our forest well. And I go, yeah, as a lead certified credited architect in energy and environmental design, yeah, there are certain principles, there are certain natural laws, but even if scientists know what to do, can they really do anything about it in the futility? We can make it bearable, maybe, but you know, that, that's all going back to God is just the watchmaker and let it go, and as long as we can come up with the right principles, <laughs> we can fix this thing. Well, the saints of God have not gotten any comfort from that vision because it's not a biblical vision. The biblical vision is given in verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The miserable condition of the world today is futility, it's corruption, it's groaning are owing to the judicial decree of God in response to sin. Now secondly, Many Christians are so desperate to remove God from the suffering in the world that they try to deny suffering for Christians altogether. You ever met those kind? They claim that God, that Jesus secured your healing on the cross. They'll quote, by his stripes you have been healed. And they, by, they'll say that's physical healing right there instead of spiritual healing, which is obviously what it is. And so there's a per pervasive false teaching that God wants every Christian to be healthy and wealthy. God doesn't want you to suffer, so if you just have enough faith, you're exempt from it. They say if you're sick or poor, then you need to claim your healing or your wealth by faith. Now, those people who teach these things are lying. They are preying on people's greed and their natural longing to be in good health and to prosper. And it's not any accident that faith healers get sick and die at the same rate as everybody else. 100%. <laughs> And they also come to disease and death at about the same age as the rest of us. What does that tell us? Don't follow their teaching. You know, as I thought of this, Paul himself suffered terribly. When he got saved, the Lord told Ananias, the prophet whom he sent to open Paul's eyes, he said of Paul, or Saul of Tarsus at that time, for I will show him, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Do you think Paul had any lesser faith than any of these guys on the TV set? I don't think so. You know, Paul often mentions the trials he endured that would have driven most of us to despair. If you want to take a look at those, they're over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, beginning. Because Paul was facing the same kind of stuff. If, if Paul was a real apostle of Jesus Christ, he wouldn't be going through all this stuff. And so these false apostles were saying, well, look at us. You know, we're not doing all of this. We're, we're really the good servants of Christ. And so he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. I far more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Why 39 lashes? Anybody know? Because 40 was considered a death sentence. 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. 
I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then I like what he adds in verse 28. Got all this external stuff going on. And those of us who wake up in the middle of the night worrying about people, we can relate with verse 28. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And so he adds that the internal pressure is just as bad as the external pressure. And our Lord himself was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus came into this world as suffering to bear our sins through his own suffering and death. So how can we think that somehow we will be exempt from suffering? In the sovereign purposes of God, some of us will suffer more and some of us will suffer less. But none of us are exempt. It's part of living in this fallen world. And God is with us in all our suffering. So what, what is the meaning of all this misery in the world? Do you ever wonder, why, why, Lord? What should we take away from this, what Paul has told us here in Romans? And this is the bottom line. This is what we need to take away. The bottom line is that all sin is horrific. All sin is horrific. You know, Adam and Eve, they weren't mass murderers. They didn't burn down the forest. They didn't, didn't do a lot of stuff. They, they weren't pedophiles. What did they do? They disobeyed God and ate from a stupid tree. And that sin is horrific. All natural evil is a statement about the horror of moral evil. And if you see suffering in this world, it is unspeakably horrible. And I think we set a new record this last week. Maybe because I was thinking about these things. But there's just one new story on the news. One after another, you go, we've never seen anything like this before. Just boom, 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 boom. Why? It should make you shudder at how unspeakably horrible sin is against the holy God. The meaning of futility and the meaning of corruption and the meaning of our groaning is that sin, falling short of the glory of God, is ghastly, it's hideous, it's repulsive, it's beyond imagination. And unless you have some sense of the infinite holiness of God and the unspeakable outrage of sin against God, then you're going to see this futility and suffering in the universe and, you know, oh, that's just an overreaction. But in fact, the point of our miseries, the point of our futility, the point of our corruption, the point of our groaning is to teach us the horror of sin and to teach us the preciousness of redemption and hope. Paul tells us all this cosmic context because he wants to help us understand our situation. And when we understand our situation, we endure our sufferings with faith and hope. The story has a wonderful end, and we're going to see more of that as we get into to Romans chapter 8. It has a wonderful end even for what we'd call inanimate creation, because even creation longs for that end. We saw that in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That word translated longing there means to stretch the neck. 
<laughs> Have you ever stretched the neck so you can see? No, you haven't. <laughs> Julie, please don't stretch your neck right now. <laughs> to stretch the neck, we're longing. She's stretching her neck, waiting for this to, to get better, to, to, to go away. And then in verse 26, the whole creation groans. Creation itself is, is groaning. Everything laments together because everything is touched by the curse. How great is the evil of sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. Two people on a tiny little planet in a universe without boundaries polluted the whole place. Two people. You talk about the impact of sin. You talk about the far-reaching implications of iniquity. Two people polluted the whole creation so that the whole creation ultimately, even after being renovated after a thousand years of the reign of Christ, it's going to be uncreated (laughs) and created Again, that's the power of sin, and that's the point of the curse, to make that clear. The whole universe agonizes until it can be restored, until it be regenerated. The agony of this earth is illustrated by a comment from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I wonder, he writes, whether the phenomena of the spring supplies us with an insight. Every every, excuse me, nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has to come out of the death and darkness of all that is so true of that winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pangs year by year, but unfortunately it doesn't succeed. So spring only leads to summer, summer leads to autumn, and autumn to winter. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it but it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds, so it goes on groaning and travailing and pain together until now. It has been doing so for a very long time, and nature repeats the efforts annually. And I can add to that, I think there's a reason that our apples are wormy year after year after year after year. But like the pain of childbirth, the agony of waiting to bring forth something new and unable to do it, but in creation, it does in hope because Christ himself will one day do it. Back to verse 21. There's coming a day when the birth pangs of creation will bear fruit. That the creation itself, in hope that the creation itself will also be what? Set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul personifies creation groaning as anxiously awaiting the culmination of salvation for God's children like it's groaning in childbirth because that will trigger the release from the corruption to which all creation has been subjected since Adam and Eve fell into sin. At that time, God's judgment on Adam included that judgment on creation Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Not only in the botanical world, but in the animal world it came under the curse. But there is coming a day when creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the creation of God. There's many pictures and illustrations of that in, in the Bible, but I think of Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah gives this vision in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, page 846. 
you're familiar with these words. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. In poetic language, Isaiah pictures a vision of restored creation. Verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child will play by the home of the hole of the cobra. That word translated will play there is one of my favorite words in scripture. It's, it's shah'ah. It means to romp, to play. And it's used by the psalmist, particularly in Psalm 119, where the psalmist delights in the word of God. He romps, he plays in the word of God. And the weaned child will put his hand by the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah pictures here a vision of restored creation. Where there won't be any violence, there won't be any death. Where the new natural order of things is where... You know, now it's where the fittest survive by preying on the weaker. And I'm not just talking about the animal kingdom. It's true in business and politics, isn't it? But the Bible teaches that this is really not natural. Violence and death, even in the animal kingdom, are the result of the curse on man's sin. Death was not part of the original creation, which God pronounced as good. And in the future, when believers receive the full redemption that has been promised to us in Christ. All of creation is going to be restored, at least to its original state, and most commentators say, even to a greater state of glory. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we have so much to look forward to. All that you have for us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. But here we see from Paul and we gain an understanding of what it means to live for you and just to live in this world until we reach that point. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit we might be able to keep these All these things, all the suffering, all the violence, everything that is in the world that is is evil in the proper perspective, Lord. And that in doing that, you will give us the ability through your Holy Spirit to stand fast, to persevere. And as things get worse or seem to get worse, Lord, even that will say to us, we are looking forward to the glory and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And Father, we do and know and understand that we are not here on our own. You have given us your Holy Spirit who lives in us, who comes with power, who sustains us, who encourages us, who nourishes us through your word. And Father, you have given us our church, this fellowship, this body of believers that we're all in this boat together, as it were, Lord. But we thank you for the strength that you give us through the support and encouragement of one another. 
no matter what we may suffer. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.